millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello everybody and welcome to the Crime Investigation Podcast. This is the June edition and welcome again for some more crime-based conversation. Well, what a month it's been in the world of crime. Very traumatic incidents have happened all over the world and we're going to be covering them in depth on this show. Over the course of this episode, we'll be talking to the former art teacher of Holloway Prison. We'll be chatting to a US-based journalist who is an expert on gun laws in that country. But firstly, we're talking to Dr Kerry Nixon about three crime cases that have happened over the past month. First of all, can you tell us your impressions on the Ben Butler case, how it's affected you, and if you worked in similar areas around it? Yeah, this is, um, it's one of those, there's some cases that really have an impact on you, and this is one of those cases. Reading through a lot of the reporting of it today, I've just been getting angrier and angrier as I've been reading it, because just reading the background and the decisions that have been made um, throughout the last few years, it's just such a tragedy that that little girl has lost her life. What sort of things do you think could have been done differently to prevent such a crime from happening? Well, when we look at the original conviction of of Butler when the the shaking of Ellie when she was a baby and how that was then later um, squashed and even went further than that, the judge in the family court case completely exonerated him. And it's the judge's rulings that followed that have made this case extremely difficult for the professionals involved to deal with it accurately in terms of the risk that was posed by him and the care that was given to Ellie. I mean, we hear so much about social services and um, the blamings of social workers when a child is harmed. In this case, it was social workers that were very, very concerned and said that those children should not be in the care of that man. And if we'd listened to social care, that child would possibly still be alive. Murderers like Butler and abusers of a similar ilk, they often tend to be charismatic. They're very adamant. They're telling lies, but the way they tell those lies is often, it looks very truthful. Is that an issue? Are people slow to respond to people like him who are so keen to point out that they're innocent and they refuse to accept any liability for things like that? Absolutely. The... You know, a a classic aspect of domestic abuse, which he was. He was a domestic abuse perpetrator. He was violent to to Jenny Gray. He was horrifically violent to an ex-girlfriend. He had a conviction for that. He also had convictions for violence against males. So we know he was a violent perpetrator. 
and with domestic abuse perpetrators, a key aspect of, of this type of domestic abuse perpetrator is what we call coercive control. And the very nature of coercive control is to be manipulative. And we see a lot with these types of perpetrators that they are very good at manipulating those around them and are very good at telling lies and are very good at denying what it is, what it is they've done. And this is something that Butler has done consistently over the years. Butler was jailed for 23 years, a minimum of 23 years, while his, well, the mother of Ellie, um, Jenny Gray, was jailed for 42 months. Do you think they're fair sentences? Do you think that in terms of crimes like this, is there rehabilitation? Is that possible? Is it possible for someone whose identity, such in Butler's case, has been one of violence consistently on a regular basis? Is it possible to change? I'm a forensic psychologist, so I believe in change. Um, and yes, there are many individuals who are violent and can do really well with treatment. Um, the key thing is, though, if Butler has said, he said in his, his statements in court, that he will continue the fight. Now, if he continues to deny and lives in this, his, like, believing his own hype, he's not going to be able to be rehabilitated because to be rehabilitated you have to first admit what you've done and that's very painful a lot of people who go through that process it's, they kind of go into a depth of despair before they can then go on to kind of try and be rehabilitated but if you've got somebody who is still manipulating everybody around them and is still denying what they've done in the face of a huge amount of evidence that's going to be really difficult to rehabilitate somebody like that because he has to admit it first he has to accept what he's done. One person who didn't accept or can't accept what they did was Omar Mateen, who on June the 12th of this year, he killed 49 people inside the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, Florida. He was killed in a shootout with the police uh, after he had committed this atrocity, which is the deadliest mass shooting by a single gunman in the history of the United States. When we talk about murderers, when we talk about killers, when we talk about serial killers, Mateen killed 49 people. Is there a different mindset in murderers in terms of people who kill once, and people who kill often, is there a difference at all? Oh, well, yes. In terms of people who kill, there's a whole reasons why people kill. You know, there's, uh, there's social reasons, there's, there's um, some biological reasons, there's, you know, history of abuse themselves. There's a whole reason, you know, and I see different offenders who commit acts of violence for, for a, an array of reasons. Um, in relation to... Serial killers are mass murderers, and he would be deemed a spree murderer because he killed many in one go. We, we do see some differences, but generally the, the whole kind of background of why people offend and understanding why one person would go out and kill, um, has to, we have to look at the individual case to understand that. We can't say that he fits the profile of, of a certain kind of person. We have to look at that particular case to understand why, in this case, he went and killed 49 people. Um, but his background, we see that it's been reported that he's, he's aggressive, he's volatile. There's been some you know, mention of, of suppressed homosexuality himself. Um, there's also been the mention of, of links to, you know, um, of Daesh. And, um, you know... <laughs> There's a whole host of reasons there that point to why he did this. Many people have been stunned by the magnitude of the crime in that he could just walk into a nightclub and cause an atrocity like that. What do you think the explanation is for that sort of crime? When somebody is capable of walking into a club and just massacring people, that means they are a very dangerous individual. I think with, with this case, 
there was a deep-set anger that this individual had. There's also been some claims that he had bipolar disorder. So all these things combined created a very angry, a very aggressive individual that then unleashed that on the community that he feels hatred towards. You talk about extremism, you talk about mental health issues, and that leads us on to the third case we're talking about today, the murder of Joe Cox, the Labour MP. Uh, this happened very recently on June the 16th. Um, she was stabbed and, and shot by 52-year-old Thomas Mayer. He is a man who has been linked to extreme far-right organisations and all over the press talks about his mental health has taken place. What can you tell us about this case from your perspective? Watching the, the news footage of this over the last few days, it's, it's really quite upsetting that a woman with so much passion and so much you know, drive to do good for people has, has had her life ended so tragically at such a young age with young children. It's, it's, it's just incredibly sad. Um, it's also been very interesting for me to, to watch this in terms of the work that I've previously done, and I've done some work looking at the use of rhetorical devices that are used by extreme right-wing groups. So I looked at uh, 29 groups, um, ranging from the very extreme right-wing groups who, who incite violence and are very aggressive in their rhetoric, right the way through to the more moderate groups. And um, what was very interesting with that research is that what we actually realised is that the underlying ideology of the groups is the same. It's how they put their message out and the audience they want to attract. So um, what we know from Mayer is that he has um, a, a long history of reading literature from some of the most extreme groups, some groups that were based in the US, but also has some links to the more moderate groups. And I think it's, it's raised a very important issue that actually these extreme right-wing groups are incredibly dangerous and they can incite individuals to do acts of violence when they are um, particularly vulnerable people. You know, vulnerable people are attracted to these groups. And once they're um, attracted to these groups, there's also been links in the media that um, suggest that he may have been suffering. His, his brother said that he suffered and was diagnosed with OCD. So he may have had that obsessional personality that once he became attracted to these groups, it wasn't just a kind of a passing interest. He became overwhelmed by the ideologies of these groups. How do you feel about that, the mental health aspect? OCD is, of course, an incredibly serious condition that the people suffer from in intensely, but do you feel like there's too much emphasis placed on mental illness? There's so many people in the world who unfortunately suffer from mental illness, but they're not going around killing people, are they? Absolutely. This is something I'm really quite passionate about. You know, the majority of people with mental illness do not go out and commit acts of violence, you know, and, and absolutely don't go out and commit these awful attacks and, you know, mass murder and, and murdering MPs. The majority of people with mental illness suffer dreadfully day in, day out, but they're very much, they suffer, you know, they, they take out most of their pain on themselves, you know, and I think to constantly link these acts to the person suffering mental illness. There's nothing for those people that are suffering mental illness um, up and down the country. And, you know, OCD is very de debilitating, and people can suffer OCD to varying degrees, some of which is to the point where they can't leave the house 
because of the um, obsessive compulsive disorder. But it's very rare. And, you know, there's no link whatsoever to link OCD and this type of act of violence. Finally, Kerry, thank you so much for your time today. It's very interesting to know that in this conversation we've established that all three of these murderers, although they have something in common that they've killed, they've all did it for different reasons. Their motives were different. Is that interesting to point out that, that not every murder is the same, that everybody has their own different ways of, of not just doing it, but, but the reasons for doing it as well? Absolutely. I mean, and I think often that's why mental illness is often kind of, you know, put there straight away, and because it actually makes society feel more comfortable if we can say oh they did that because they were mentally ill it almost makes us feel that all oh, that wouldn't happen to us or that wouldn't happen to somebody we know we want to distance ourselves when actually there's people who commit murders for a whole host of reasons you know some dreadful things happen to children and they grow up to be incredibly angry people and that's not justifying by the way and I, I never say anything that justifies even if somebody has had a dreadful life I'm not saying that they then are justified to go on and commit an act of violence but it's about me as a psychologist it's about understanding how a person can grow up to become that person so that's what I'm interested in and, and what I know from both from research and both from experience of working with offenders is that so many different offenders stories and journeys are different there's commonalities amongst them in terms of you know abuse is a big factor lack of attachment and bonding is a huge factor and um and making these people incredibly aggressive throughout life whatever has made them become aggressive so there are patterns absolutely there's patterns in what makes somebody kill um, but we also have to look at those patterns and then understand the context of those individual cases to understand it. Well, thank you very much to Kerry for appearing on the show today. You can follow her on Twitter, at Nixon Kerry. OK, after this little piece of music, we'll be talking to the former art teacher of Holloway Prison. We are back on the Crime Investigation podcast with Hilary Beach. And Hilary, welcome to the show. Hello to you. Very pleased to have you on today. For people who don't know who are listening right now, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you first become interested in art and how did that interest lead to working with art in prisons? I first became interested in art when I won a competition when I was at school. So I was obviously um, something that I was good at and, and kids always tend to want to actually learn more about what they're good at. So that was my initial introduction to art. And then I went to Leeds College of Art and then the Royal College of Art. And after that, I taught in some art schools at the same time doing my own work and then felt as though I wanted to do a little bit more than just have the experience of um, of art schools. And I was curious because I heard of a job that might be coming up at Holloway. So I knew that it would be more than just um, teaching. It would be teaching uncommitted students and they would be adults. So that that what um, that drew me to the um, to the work in Holloway, and I was there for thirty years. When you started working at Holloway, was it as infamous as it is now? Did it always have that reputation of being a very controversial prison, but one that was full of very interesting and sometimes dangerous inmates? Well, when you go into a building that has let this be um, uh, a terror to evildoers, and you walk through the doors and you think this is where I'm going to work, you can't. 
you know, you can't not be rather kind of um, wary of what you're going to meet when you get in there. But there were a lot of misconceptions, especially because I worked at the time when the old prison, the old Victorian prison was there. And it was a kind of military... It had a kind of military feel about it. The officers were called officers. They're not guards. They lived within the precincts of the prison. They had officers' quarters. They had a mess. So it was... It did give you the feeling that it was kind of military. And it was an awe-inspiring design with huge great ceilings very little light so you had this kind of luminous lack of 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 light bland atmosphere to it um, when the new purpose-built prison came along it that de- that humanized it what exactly was your role there and and as you say there, there was an old prison and it was rebuilt was yeah. your role did it change throughout the years or did it kind of stay a, a similar thing when i was when i was first in there i was um, a, a small part-time teacher with no keys, so I couldn't walk anywhere without somebody having to open doors for me. So I was a bit of a nuisance, really, and I was part of a small new education department employed by the ILEA to create a new education syllabus for the women. But I was the lowest of the low. I um, I had no classroom. I was peripatetic. I had to visit women wherever they were in old disused cells, take buckets of water up to them um, if we wanted to clean pallets or anything like that. I had to visit the um, hospital wing with, and then I had to go on the mother and baby wing, the young offenders wing and just make do and mend. As I got a little bit more credibility, I became a full-time tutor. And with the new purpose-built prison, we had our own proper purpose-built education department, and I finally had a classroom. But before then, I had nothing, really. Were the classes available to everybody, or did people have to be on good behaviour? What was the system like in terms of getting people into the classes? Before I went there, there was art, and it was purely recreational. So there was little emphasis on education as a means to transform lives. And as I continued working, the education department was considered um, as work, just like um, the different kind of work where women go to the work on the gardens or in the kitchens. So it was never established as um, a reward for anything which was always kind of good. But evening education was um, and evening education was available for women who worked. Um, but that has stopped. That stopped eventually, which was always um, a bad thing, I think. It didn't make education available for all. Is that important, do you think, for people in prison to be able to learn, be able to expand their horizons in terms of creativity and all sorts of other things? Is that important for you in terms of prison, do you think? Yes, it, it is. Education has been established as a means by which women can learn, question, be reflective. And they used to come to the education department having very, very little experience sometimes of schooling. Eventually, when they became a little bit more secure in themselves, they used to go to other classrooms. A lot of people in prison, though, they committed rather extreme action you know, to get in there. For you, yeah. was, it, was it difficult to separate the person from the crime or were you able to see the person for more than just what they'd previously done in terms of teaching them? 
There were people in the prison who I am heartily relieved were behind bars and uh, for whose really um, violent behaviour needed to be held in check and the only way they could do it by keeping them away from society. The big-name prisoners you either read about in the paper, but it was um, a professional attitude that we were teachers and our attitude was treat them as any other inmate. Hilary, you were recently on the crime investigation show Holloway Women Behind Bars. How were you approached to be on the show? I wrote a book about Holloway, and I wrote a book about Holloway because, to me, it was when I left, during my last years there, for, uh, however, um, it seemed to me that it was a very, very secretive establishment. If you go to Parkhurst Road, there's this enormous great building, which nobody really knows very, very much about. Next door to it is a kind of benign news agent. Across the road is a garage. And it seemed to me that people going in there locally didn't really know what was happening. And um, it seemed to me there was a lot of injustices going on in that establishment. And... um, it, it, it was the secretiveness that worried me very, very much. And also the fact that there were, I felt there was an awful lot of women there who should never have been in prison. People with, with um, mental health problems. During my time there, people were, had such mental health difficulties. Some young people, they harmed themselves. They committed suicide. There were a lot of physically unfit women who shouldn't have been there. They should have been in hospital. A lot of the mothers and babies shouldn't have been there. Uh, you know, there should only have been about 10% of the people, of the women in there, I felt. And they were incredibly creative. And at the sight of, of education, they just showed abilities and resources that had been kind of hidden before they were taught in Holloway, before they were given opportunities. You know, people say that, you know, there was a swimming pool, there was a, a all-purpose gym, they had a television, and some people I know saying, you know, prison is kind of easy. But that, to me, doesn't worry me, because... First, prison shouldn't make people worse. And second, if they do find prison easy, then what does it say about their life outside? It's a beautiful book you wrote, Holloway Prison and Inside Story. It's a wonderful, wonderful book to read, very interesting to look at as well. It mixes the, the art as well as the stories. Um, one thing that you've done in your career, which is very, very impressive, you were awarded an MBE in the early 90s as a result of your work in Holloway. Yes, How was that? I know. I know, I'm baffled and I'm still baffled and I'm still perplexed and um, it's a curious thing, isn't it, these these awards? Yes, it was a very strange time that, you know, going to Buckingham Palace, you know, I was just a member of a, t- I was a, member of a team and, uh, and I wanted to, you know, I don't know why I was given it. I mean, I, uh, you know, it just seemed to me that there wasn't enough finish, there wasn't enough vision going on, there wasn't enough real good planning of Holloway. You know, I think there was an opportunity there with all the all the talent in prison for, for women to give back into society. And we did that. We had a shop. We helped the Whittington Hospital. We got women to be uh, make contacts with the further education college outside. We made murals. Um, and the, uh, inside to change the appearance within the 
prison. There's a lot of topics uh, and discussion on women's prison at the moment. There's shows like Orange is a New Black or The Jail, Six Days, and or even Holloway Women Behind Bars. Do you think it's important that people are discussing, investigating and analysing uh, female prisoners a lot more now? Well, I don't think they are. Uh, Perhaps they are, but it's a waste of time if nothing is done about it. If it's purely for entertainment, then I'm I'm very dubious about that. If it actually changes people's perception of offending women, who in some ways it has been established do get harsher sentences than men. I'm not too sure about why that. Maybe it's something to do with Eve (laughs) or Delilah or something like that. But um, if if it's just for entertainment value and nothing comes of it, then I don't think it's particularly constructive, no. Okay, we really appreciate your time today and thank you so much. One final question for you. So Holloway Prison, so famous, so... Worldwide, it's, it's known all across the world. For you, what made it such a unique and compelling prison, and why do you think it's still discussed in detail and prominence to this very day? I think it's probably because it's the largest, it was the largest remand female prison in the whole of Europe, and it just had so many myths. It certainly did. And you can watch all those myths dispelled or proven on Holloway, Women Behind Bars, on Crime Investigation. That show had a lot of feedback online. Our Twitter audience, at CI, and our Facebook audience, at CI UK, really reacted to it. They really enjoyed the show and had a lot of positive things to say. We asked our audience online this month if they can make any law in the world, what would they make? It's a tough question because really, when you think about it, if the power was in your hands... Anything is possible, right? Well, here's what our audience came up with. Linda Cresswell said that she wished that computer DNA would be available for all births. So any child born, that their DNA samples taken, because she says it will help criminals be caught much quicker. Sabrina Lee says that school leavers should either go to college or enter military service. I think I'd choose college uh, out of those two. Duke Nuke on Twitter, our old friend Duke Nuke, said that he said that a slow walking lane should be introduced and they can text at the same time, whereas the fast walkers, they can go on the fast lane. That's, that's one I definitely agree with. More of you also suggested that animal abuse, there should be more stringent laws implemented on that. While Miss Drifty said that anybody who chews loudly or open-mouthed, that that should be eradicated immediately. But one powerful statement that was made by uh, Vicky Simon on Facebook, she said that in the US there should be a ban on gun sales. And that's something we're going to touch upon after this little clip where we talk about strange laws in the UK. And when we come back, we'll talk about an even strange law in the US, gun laws. Sobering news. It is illegal to be drunk in any licensed premises. According to the 1872 Licensing Act, landlords will face a penalty for every drunk person found on the premises. In a law that dates back to 1872, it is illegal to be intoxicated while you have a horse in your care. The same law also applies to cows. It's illegal to shake out a rug in the street. It is, however, all right to beat or shake out a doormat, providing you do so before 8am. Under the Salmon Act of 1986, it is illegal to handle a salmon in suspicious circumstances. However, the Law Commission have never defined what constitutes as being suspicious with a salmon. From 1541, all Englishmen between 17 and 60 were legally required to own a longbow and practice regularly. This was the case until the law was removed in 1960. Pregnant women are the only group of people who are legally allowed to urinate anywhere in public, including in a police officer's helmet. Under Transport for London bylaws, it is illegal to jump the queue in a tube station ticket hall. Passengers must join from the back of the queue. Liverpudlian fish sellers. 
Public toplessness is illegal for women in Liverpool, except for those who work in shops selling tropical fish. Those women are legally allowed to be topless. Traditionally, the Queen takes ownership of all wild, unmarked mute swans in open water. Queen Elizabeth II only lays claim to swans on the Thames and some other areas. This makes it illegal to kill one of these swans. We are back on the Crime Investigation podcast with Jamie Lee Falcon. Jamie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So our first question basically is a simple one. Can you give an explanation what the current U.S. gun laws are? Uh, currently in America, pretty much everybody can purchase a firearm um, as long as they go to a gun shop where a background check will be run. And the background check basically searches to make sure that you have not committed a felony, you have not been committed to a mental institution, that you aren't currently have a, uh, a restraining order against you. Uh, for domestic violence, they also check to see if you are under the influence of any controlled substances. Now, that's only when you go to a gun shop. We have a thing called the gun show loophole where private sellers are able to sell firearms without running the background check. And statistically, it looks like there are up to 5 million gun purchasers in America who don't get a background check through this gun show loophole. Also, you have states like Texas, which allow for open carry where people are allowed with the right license to just walk around carrying a firearm. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. That's really interesting. So from your perspective, having traveled all across America, how many Americans are actually carrying guns? I would say, and, and, and I'm being conservative, I would say probably one in four people right now have a firearm within a 20-foot radius of themselves. I mean, I'm in California and where you have to register every gun in the state, and there is a gun sitting outside my bedroom because my roommate owns it. And, and it's really fascinating because it's not just the people that you would think of that are just super pro-gun. I know people that are uh, software engineers who will not travel without a gun in their car. I know people that are teachers that keep guns close to them at all times because it's so ingrained in our society. For you as a regular citizen, do you feel more or less safe knowing that so many people are carrying weaponry? Uh, I feel... I don't feel safer with people having guns and guns being so readily available. I, uh, I'm from Texas, and I, I grew up working on a ranch where guns were a part of everyday life. Um, you needed them for protection, you know, snakes and various other forms of wildlife. Uh, but I was also raised to see them as tools, not as toys. And so when I see people brandishing guns or just going to get the newest gun, it makes me very uncomfortable because these are instruments that are used, you know, to kill. That's what they're for. They have no other purpose than to kill. A lot of Americans reference the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms, as a reason for them to, to carry guns. Is that really acceptable and right in this day and age? 
Well, the Second Amendment exists. Uh, it was actually based on the English Bill of Rights from the 1600s, our, the American Bill of Rights. And the Second Amendment says that we have the right to bear arms and to keep a well-regulated militia. Of course, this was the 1700s when people can come in and do whatever they want if they had a gun. It's not so much of a thing now in 2016, but we've seen the Supreme Court rule in favor of the Second Amendment as recently as this year uh, when they declared that even though the Second Amendment was written in the 1700s, it has nothing in there preventing new technology from being used. Now, um, the idea that someone is going to parade down Broadway in New York and take over the country is, well, baffling. Um, And the fact that we as Americans are so, so in love with being Americans and being free, it causes this kind of uh, glorification of uh, something that was written, you know, almost 300 years ago. 20 years ago in the UK, after the Dumb Lane Massacre, there was a huge gun reform. Uh, people were no longer allowed to legally own handguns and, and other things of that nature. But in the US, there's so many different tragic incidents involving firearms, including the famous Sandy Hook Massacre in 2012. Why is nothing being done about this, despite there being so many crimes? Well, uh, a mass shooting is considered a shooting of four people or more. And I believe we have one that happens almost weekly. Um, there have been over 200 mass shootings since Sandy Hook happened. And it's become almost a ho-hum factor of everyday life. Uh, recently, as recently as three days ago, a woman uh, who was very pro-gun and posted on social media about how the government can never take her guns, murdered her two daughters with a gun and in the streets in Texas. Um, and you start to see these things as just a part of your life. Uh, there are shootings in Chicago daily. Um, there's gun violence in Los Angeles daily. Um, and many people will say that they need these guns to protect themselves from that, not thinking about the factor of their owning these guns causing these things. Um, you are more likely to be harmed in a domestic uh, a domestic abuse uh, situation if a gun is available. Well, that's a very powerful statistic. You yourself in the past have used guns. You were formerly a member of the National Rifle Association, but you're now no longer. Do you feel in a way you're almost a poster child for gun reform in the US and how people who grew up with guns can learn that they're not a necessity in life, that they can't control you, we have to control them? Well, uh, the thing is, in Texas, you're pretty much born with a rifle in the, cr- in the cradle with you. Um, hunting is a part of our culture. The outdoors are part of our culture, and with that comes shooting. Now, I was very fortunate to have a father and a grandfather who told me this was not a toy. This is a tool. This is a weapon. This is something that we use for protection, but we don't brandish it around. It's not cool to own a gun. The gun is there just to keep you safe. Um, in 2008, after shortly after the Obama campaign, which I worked for, I joined the NRA out of just wanting to, you know, take some of their classes and kind of see what their literature was like. Shortly after that, we had the rash of mass shooting uh, erupt, and the NRA took a stance that we can't limit guns. We have to have all the guns. We have to have magazines that hold 30 rounds. We have to have 
semi-automatic weapons, and I can't became very disillusioned with the idea of gun ownership. Um, and I, I say, unfortunately, I say it all the time because there are mass shootings almost weekly. Um, it should be harder to get a gun than it is to get a driver's license in this country. You have to take a test. You have to go to a certain place to get a driver's license. You have the right to get behind the wheel of a of a of what could be considered a weapon if you use it that way. You know, these are machines. Machines are dangerous. It should not be so easy to get these machines. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. If anyone wants to get in touch, read your work, or ask more questions about this, what's the best way of contacting you? Uh, well, I'm very active on Twitter, um, and I I don't recommend following me on Twitter, but I it's the easiest way to get a hold of me, and that's at Jamison Paul. That's J-A-I-M-E-S-O-N-P-A-U-L. My email is in that bio, and uh, I'm more than happy to interact and answer any questions anybody has. And that concludes this month's Crime Investigation Podcast. Thank you, everybody, for listening. If you've enjoyed it and you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter, at CI. We're on Facebook, at CI UK. On iTunes, if you really, really want to show your appreciation, rate and review us. Five stars would be great. But wherever you leave, I'm sure you're going to be truthful. But once again, thank you. And remember, stay curious. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff: shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.